everybody. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the HIS 296 podcast. Um, this week we have a very special edition of the podcast. Um, this is actually uh, an interview I recorded last year with the head of the Japanese studies program here at AIU, Professor Sean O'Reilly. Um, and it's a very interesting exploration of the kinds of ways that colonizing Korea and the Korean colonial project um, not only had the kind of profound effects on Korean society that we've discussed in the course, but also um, in reverse significantly um, affected Japanese society in, in multiple and lasting ways. And uh, as uh, an expert on Japanese history, society, and politics, I think Professor O'Reilly is very well placed to um, help us understand that side of the phenomenon um, much more deeply and provides a huge amount of insight. So um, I thank Professor O'Reilly again for taking the time last year to sit down and record this. Um, I hope uh, you gain a lot from it and I look forward to seeing you in class next week. Thanks. All right. Well, hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is another um, edition of the History 296 podcast. But today we actually have a guest and it's not just me talking by myself on the microphone. So I'm sure you're excited. Um, and as I mentioned to you in class, um, our guest today is Professor Sean O'Reilly, um, who teaches courses on Japanese history and society in the Japan Studies program at AIU. Um, and I'm really excited to have Sean on um, I was just having a bit of a chat with him before um, we started recording about how, you know, particularly because we're in Japan, but not only, I mean, I think wherever this course is being taught, one thing I always uh, want to stress in the class, but perhaps we don't have time to really dig into is, is, you know, reflecting on the fact that though we often think of, you know, colonialism in terms of a colonizer and a colonized, which is true. I mean, there's very real power dynamics there and, 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 and there is a direction to it, right? Japan colonized Korea. Um, but, you know, a lot of research over the last 20 or 30 years in, in an area often called post-colonial studies has really sought to, to open up our understanding of colonialism. And, and one of its many important insights is the idea that colonialism, um, though it does have um, a colonizer and a colonized in, in some sense is a process that works in two directions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and though Japan, quote unquote, colonized Korea, um, those had massive effects on Japanese society and Japanese culture and history and, and, and so forth from that point moving forward, even into the present day. And um, unfortunately, I am not uh, a scholar or expert on Japanese history and society. So I would be not well equipped to really talk about that, even if we did have the time to dig into it. Um, so that is why I have invited Professor O'Reilly, who has kindly um, agreed to take time from his very busy schedule to come and talk to us. So Professor O'Reilly, welcome. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be sure. here. Sure. No, it really is um, a great opportunity. And, and of course, um, Professor O'Reilly teaches many courses on Japan studies. Um, one, which is, I think, a great compendium, like a, a course to take in, in, in addition to History of Modern Korea, is History of Modern Japan, right, which will be offered um, in the spring. So if you haven't already taken that course, um, I think taking those two courses is, is is a really excellent way to kind of fill out your understanding of these countries that have had, you know, at times rocky relations, but whose history and whose 
um, um, you know, are kind of closely interconnected, right? And so he he does teach that course um, in the spring. Okay, so um, jumping in on that, I'm just going to throw to you this this idea of colonialism as a two way street. And so in our course, we're we're centering kind of the Korean perspective and thinking about how Koreans um, dealt with, responded, reacted to. Um, had experienced um, this period of colonial rule, but I, I, you know, in as much in as in in any way you would like, you know, how how did the process of colonizing affect Japan? Yeah, uh, well, it is a big question. It's a big sort of topic, and I think there were many different subject positions, so to speak, uh, for people in Japan as they considered the colonial project. And the colonial project, you know, officially begins in 1910, but it in fact began in, in incipient form much earlier than that, all the way back into the 1870s. So if we go all the way back there, there are already people of that much earlier, very beginning of the Meiji period generation who were saying, um, arguing for a kind of defensive imperialism, if that makes sense. Of course, it's it didn't feel defensive to the people in Korea, I'm sure, but uh, but the idea is to protect Japan by exploiting nearby countries and creating a kind of like defensive perimeter for Japan. That's how many people viewed Korea strategically, at least at the beginning in the 1870s. And the same tactics that were used by the Americans against Japan uh, in the 1850s are then just like completely copied and used against uh, the Korean court in the 1870s. And after that point, too, for an entire generation, or actually more like two generations, there's heavy involvement by high-level Japanese statesmen, uh, and I think it's almost all men, so I can just say statesmen, um, in Korean politics, manipulating court politics in Korea, um, trying to play off, um, you know, kind of pro-Japanese or at least anti-Qing uh, figures in the Korean court to try and create more and more influence for the Japanese side. But that's all at the very high level. How do regular people actually view Korea? And uh, that's more difficult to say for sure, but there are more than just two subject positions available to people at the time, Japanese people at the time, when they think about Korea. Of course, there could be the true believers who just believe that it's somehow Japan's you know, nationalist destiny to control countries nearby. There are also people who argue uh, I guess almost um, philosophically that Japan also for defensive reasons must take an interest in Korea. This is most famous uh, in the case of Fukuzawa Yukichi, the uh, person who still is on the uh, 10,000 yen bill today. Um, he was famous for many things, but one of the things he was famous for was his so-called Datsua or out of Asia thesis, uh, which he argued in the mid 1880s saying what Japan must do is control how people are treated in Korea. Uh, and until the Japanese government can in intervene in Korea such that Korean development, Korean sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, civilization can progress to satisfactory standards as the West defines it, then um, it's going to reflect poorly on Japan, uh, it, which is a kind of outrageous argument in a way. Uh, how How is it the case that you know, the, the status of Korean prisons, for example, actually uh, reflects poorly on Japan. But that's the sort of argument that people like Fukuzawa, the famous liberal, the famous progressive, um, were actually making, even as far back as the 1880s. Right. Um, and, and I think, you, you know, there's a few things that, that I think were really important that you hit on there. And, and um, one was certainly this, this idea of how far back the kind of um, Japan's um, the, at least the the Meiji government's um, desire to you know um, you know seeing Korea as a kind of important 
kind of foothold within within mainland Asia and, and as a means of protecting themselves right from both Chinese and um, you know also happening in this period Russia is expanding into East Asia and so, so from Russian kind of expansion and um, unsurprisingly they would and you know Japan would end up fighting two wars like war against China and then success um, subsequently Russia and one thing, well, there's a few things. One that was was interesting is that we did talk about in the class, right? This how Japan, in some ways, um, was, you know, buying into or 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 you know, um, throwing their lot in with this kind of prevailing colonial logic, this kind of zero sum, like a mixture of zero sum, like like social Darwinism, right? We talked about in the class, right? And that, um, and and what was interesting to me, um, and this is, you know something that again post-colonial studies will often kind of focus on these kinds of grayer areas where you know um, there was this process where a lot of Koreans um, you know bought into to what was this like yeah we're, we're backwards Korea's you know backwards and we need to you know we need to strengthen there was this idea of self-strengthening and we need to kind of adopt these kind of western standards or something we need to look at the Meiji um, government as a model or, or or so on and so forth or America or Britain and what would happen subsequently, right, is after, you know, during the kind of colonization and as the colonial, you know, the GGK was kind of taking hold, they would uh, they would use that against them. Like these people were Korean nationalists and saying, like, we got to we got to reform Korea so we can be independent. But but a lot of the you know colonizers in Japan would then take that and say, well, look, even the Koreans realize they're backwards. So we're obviously doing them a service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was very important, yeah, I think for people who were sort of pro-colonization to be able to point to, you know, it could be an exaggeration or it could be they're, they're taking the handful of people who actually did have a pro-Japan view or a sort of pro-progress view, uh, progress at any cost view, to point to them and say, see, um, we have some kind of justification for this. Um, but I will say one thing, which is quite interesting to think, uh, we, we probably have a, a tendency, I suppose, to think of Japanese government in the Meiji period, at least the first half of the Meiji period, as being relatively authoritarian. There isn't uh, a representative government until the 1890s, for example. So we can look at this earlier period and say, oh, um, people, the regular people didn't have any uh, say over anything. And I think that's a, a gross mischaracterization of what's really happening in Japan. In fact, the so-called Seikanron, which happened in 1873, right at the beginning of the Meiji period, um, was widely reported in the press um, and the opinions of people like Okubo Toshimichi uh, against a uh, kind of punitive exposi- expedition to be sent to Korea uh, were published, like publicly were pronounced or promulgated or whatever you should call it. So people were avidly reading about sort of foreign affairs, how this might affect Japan. There was already a widespread kind of almost soundbite kind of quote quote that people like to say that Korea was a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. I don't say this to excuse any of the colonial misdeeds that came after this, but what I, what I mean is even on a very populist level, like the kind of working class people of Japan, they do take an interest in Korea in a sense. And that's, I think, important to keep in mind. We, we could fall into the trap of thinking that all these decisions are being made like at a very high level. And it's only a handful of statesmen, you know, maybe even in both countries who are really um, kind of deciding the fate of Korea. And that is true in a, in a certain sense, but also there's this sort of weight of popular opinion behind it. Um, and that's important to keep in mind. No, that's, that's, that's really, and I think that's, you know, part and parcel to this process of, of taking these things that in, you know, kind of um, um, slowly over time becomes, you know, through the lens of history seen as binaries, right? And you're, you're pro 
you know, colonialism, you're anti-colonialism, or you support Korea, or you support Japan, or, you know, and, and, and we, we, you know, these things tend to get reduced to these very simple binaries. And, and when you look at, if we try to understand them, how they were seen at that time, this is another example of how there's a, a lot more nuance and complexity um, to these issues than the lens of history often looks back at them as, as kind of these forks in the road, and you went one way or the other. Um, on, on some of the notes you're mentioning in terms of the common citizenry, um, now obviously maybe these people might have been of, of a kind of more of a middle standing. Um, uh, I, I mentioned in class the other day in the context of trying to, to think about some of the complexity of, of even colonial life within Korea, um, the, the excellent book, Are You Familiar with the Merchants of Empire by Jun Uchida? Oh, I haven't read it, but yes. Right. And, and it, but I mean, but maybe, so maybe not, not to discuss the book specifically, but like the role, because one of the, the fascinating things, right, is that, you know, that book is about these people who are, who are largely commercial actors, like kind of um, people who saw kind of Korea as a financial, as an economic opportunity, like almost, I mean, to almost like, you know, a, a lot of Americans or particularly white Americans saw the West, right, as this like, you know, on, on open land, this territory that's that doesn't have a kind of quote unquote civilized plate government yet. And we can kind of it's an it's a place we can go and take make commercial kind of gains and 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 you know, obviously if you're like from a wealthy prominent Japanese family, that's probably beneath you. But these are like these enterprising kind of people. And I, I think that's fascinating in the role they came to play as as kind of these go-betweens between the GGK. And like these people are doing businesses with Koreans because they're like, you know, 99% of the population. Um, and so they, they, they understood Koreans a lot better than the GGK or had, a, and, and in some ways had some allegiances with them. And so um, I'm wondering if, if that transmission had any effect, like people going to Korea and coming back, right? Civilians more than kind of bureaucrats or government officials. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I think that's um, much more significant in a way than the high level governmental decisions that are being made. After all, people, you know, when they're in, let's say, the 1890s or whenever, when they're deciding who's going to be sent to Korea, who's going to be in a position of kind of political or even quasi military authority over Korea, like the infamous Mura and other figures like him. Um, these people don't necessarily know almost anything about Korea. They're political appointees. Um, it's the people who are already living in Korea. And there, I would say, actually, I haven't read this book, so I can't say exactly what the thesis is necessarily, but I would say that there are really just two types of settlers, if we can use that term, the idea of the sort of frontier that you're expressing. It, it's true that there are high level or I mean, like rich, powerful merchants who are, to be honest, I think in general, quite exploitative uh, in the businesses that they set up in Korea. But there's also like regular people <laughs> like settlers who just are are somehow taken with the dream of living in a new place to them, a new place to them. And what's so interesting, though, is that if you think about the sort of people for whom the idea of living in a foreign country or, let's say, a kind of you know quasi-protectorate of Japan, that, what, what sort of people would be... Uh, would find that appealing. It's not the best and the brightest of the country. And that's so important to remember. It's not like Japan is sending the absolute smartest and most entrepreneurial people to Korea. If anything, it's almost the reverse, not to point fingers at the people who went to Korea, but it's the people who couldn't make it in Japan, essentially, if you, you know, to take a gross generalization. It's the people who struggled uh, economically or for other reasons in Japan who end up saying, I'm going to try my luck somewhere else. It's an act almost of desperation for some people. So when we then see the conduct of the Japanese who have a kind of you know, first class um, 
citizenship quality, and it's a very obviously un unequal system that they put in place or that they hope will be put in place in Korea. They're, they're not the best and the brightest of Japan. Uh, and then so later when they're competing at Keijo University um, against the absolute best students of all the country, of course, they're, they, they lose. They lose these competitions. The, the best and the brightest of Korea can outstrip, obviously, the mediocre <laughs> cast-off sons of Japan. So um, that's an interesting dynamic. And, and that could explain some of the racism, or not racism, but I guess ethnocentrism and, and so forth, maybe just nationalism that infects so many people, so many Japanese people, I mean, uh, living in Korea. They have only this, only the fact that they're Japanese um, to sort of raise up um, as uh, proof of their superiority uh, in this new land. Uh, in fact, if we were to sort of peel back that defensive layer or the defensiveness, we would see that they they fled their country because they they couldn't quite uh, make ends meet there. Just as you know, a generation of people uh, from Okinawa and other places went to Hawaii uh, as um, agricultural laborers. They didn't go because it, they were true believers and they just wanted to live in Hawaii. They went because they they felt. They had no choice but to go in a sense. So it's interesting then we could see that Japan as a, as a kind of nation state is exploiting Korea, but it's also almost like using Korea as a dumping ground. And I don't mean this in, uh, in offense to Korea or to the people that go to Korea, but just as a kind of, you know, exploitative double layer of exploitation or something where that its own uh, citizens that it has no need of uh, are like being exported to Korea, uh, which right. caused problems for everybody. Well, and I think what's interesting, you know, what what's fascinating too is it 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 does touch upon that, you know, for for these people, this they weren't going for any sort of like high-minded political purpose or even like some sort of like grand civilizational narrative, like Japan's going to civilize these barbaric Koreans. They're just going to make a buck, you know. They're just going to make money, you know. And like, um, so I think it, it, you know, because again, this is it, you know, this is kind of trying to see that a lot of actors in this weren't were. You know, it's easy to say like they, there was people who were like kind of on board with this as a kind of political or ideological mission, or there are people who are against it. But yeah, I think these these actors are fascinating in the sense that they were just like, look, like yeah, like I'm having trouble making it in Japan. And I mean, my understanding in in, in kind of um, um, it's been a while since I read the book, but but it was also there was a group, maybe not all of, of within these people who were like kind of crafty people who came from the lower rungs of society and like the old caste system. And like, this was a, like, and so in, in the stifling kind of, even in the, even though the Meiji system technically got rid of these things, right. Of course they have legacies. Right. And so there's also like, a, it was like a place where I was like, well, I was born to this kind of low order and like, I got no chance here. So I don't give it, you know, so they're also, and which if you look at the parallels with the U S West, there was also that element as well. It's like, well, I'm kind of in East, you know, in this kind of high society, I have no chance. I'm come from a low background within the context. Right. And like, I have to, so it had these kind of interesting kind of plucky people as well, who are just like, I, I'm just going to go give it a shot. I've got no chance here. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And it's, um, I don't know, it's easy to lose sight of that because when people talk about it, or certainly when they write anything down about like, why did your family go to Korea? They're not going to say, well, because our family business failed and we had no choice. You know, They're going to say the rhetoric that we've come to expect that, well, we believed in the, the civilizing mission and love. You know, of course, they're going to use the same rhetoric that the leaders use. That doesn't mean they really believed it. And it certainly doesn't mean that anyone believed them if they said right. that. Right. So, um, yeah. 
Well, on the, on that note, and I think this is a good because this is something I really wanted to discuss with you, and I, and I think there's something the students would have uh, would be quite interested in in hearing hearing about and kind of some of your thoughts on it. Because one thing, and this is a curiosity I have, is is trying to parse out, and I think this is something that's always difficult to do if you're analyzing history or or you know kind of political events like this. Is um, I mean, one thing that was interesting to me is, you know, that it does, what we do know is that, for instance, in, in um, uh, 1907, when the Koreans sent um, someone to the to the Hague Peace Conference, right, and tried to, like, have Koreans seated there, like, you know, the, the Koreans weren't let in, but, the, like, it made the, you know, the Koreans were already learning, like, the how to, like, kind of get attention in the, in the kind of international um, uh, news coverage. And, like, you know, one of the reasons they kind of finally got rid of Gojong, the the last emperor or last real emperor, was like they were like this is embarrassing, right? And then um, obviously we know that um, uh, 1919, um, you know, like similar with the Versailles, um, the 1918 in the Versailles Peace Conference and the Koreans there, and like you know, there and 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 then obviously the the events of March 1st got out, and so part of the reason too to to shift to this the, the kind of quote unquote cultural rule was like this is really makes us look bad and. All as a way to say, I mean, I think, you know, of course, and this is something we stressed in the class is like, of course, Korea and Japan have a unique kind of colonial experience as, as, as to the extent that that's collect, you know, a collective experience. But on, on some level, all colonial systems have similar kind of aspects. And one of them is this kind of like angst or discomfort, you know, and, and, and you can see that with like the issue of, of, of you know, slavery or, you know, um, in the United States. And, and you know, there is. In, in, in this, in, and that leads to kind of an, an over, an extensive, you know, defensiveness. Like, of course, you'll always have the people who are like, you know, we're stronger, like, you know, the Thrasymachus, like, we're stronger, we're more powerful, and that makes it just. Like, that's it. I don't need anything else. But most people need a story. They need a, a reason. And then, like, I'm what I just, what I'm curious, and this is sorry for kind of the long wind up here, but what I'm really fascinated with is, is at this period, particularly in the, you know, like say, you know, 1910s and, and then we get into the 1920s and, you know, how, how much was that like a real thing or was that something that people just like, it, it was needed to kind of, you know, deal with, again, the, the, be, the best way, the kind of angst of like, there's, you know, did, you know, controlling other people and like, you know, you got to do some tough things. You got to do some really violent, vicious things to colonize oh, other people. Yeah. And like, like, you know, people want to find a way to square that. And like, how much was that squaring like these difficult things versus like, no, there's like a real, and I'm sure it's different for different people, but I guess that's kind of my, what I'm curious about is like, how, how much was this like a real kind of movement of like greater Asian prosperity and like we're really right, doing yeah. something. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I don't know. So that's kind of a, my, you know, what, what, any thoughts you had on that would be sure, fascinating sure. for me. Well, let me, let me just take it uh, kind of back to the late 1910s, 1919, specifically the March 1st movement, because as I'm sure you know, and many of your students probably will know or have already been told, um, it's like something like a massacre by the Japanese of Koreans in uh, Korea after this uh, movement. How widely, though, was that violence, that violent response to this independence movement? How was that reported in Japan? Well, the answer is it really wasn't reported, uh, you know, openly in Japan. So instead, the narrative, the story that people are telling themselves, and some people might actually have believed, was we 
uh, glorious civilizing Japanese are going to Korea. We're helping them. We're building schools and railroads and whatever. Uh, railroads for sure, because it needs, you know, for military reasons. But um, Right. And agricultural uh, to get the yeah, rights yeah. to the port. Yeah, to, yeah. Right. To, to continue the exploitation of Korea. So they're, they're, but they're believing this, maybe some people, and they're not getting the, the kind of reprisal aspect. It's not being reported widely, if at all. So instead, they're left with this impression of kind of regular people are left with this impression of, um, and I hate even to use this term, ungrateful Koreans, if that makes sense, right? So it's, I mean, that that's where these kind of uh, ingrained prejudices come from. Meanwhile, of course, as you and many people must know, there are thousands of ethnic Koreans living in Japan by this point, thousands and thousands, many right. of whom are in the Osaka area, but they're, they're all over the country and they're systematically being discriminated against. And there's lots of good research on that, the process by which Zainichi Koreans are kind of singled out. And that, so in other words, if you're just a regular person living in Japan and you're wondering about this sort of colonial project, which is already in full steam by 1919, what you're hearing in the news, or or maybe I, I guess reading in the news, since this is before like radio broadcasts, uh, is we're doing great stuff in Korea. That they're ungrateful. Also, we see evidence of their so-called ungrateful nature here in Japan uh, because these people didn't necessarily realize how deeply Koreans were being um, discriminated against within Japanese society. All they see is when there's a, an incident, the incident is widely reported, but not the kind of Japanese cruelty in response. And the best example of this by far is the Kanto earthquake in 1923. Uh, right, which where, took place. And so this is an incident yeah. that I wanted to ask you because this, yeah, this was in Japan, right? So then yes. we can already see kind of how, you know, like how this is not just affecting events and not just events in Korea, but oh, not within, at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So what about this? What yeah? You know, what's what what happened with the with the um, Great Kanto earthquake? Well, that, so that happened at about noon um, on September first of nineteen twenty three, and within two to three days, uh, six thousand Korean ethnic Koreans and probably some people who were not actually ethnically Korean but failed the pronunciation test were uh, murdered by posse's, sometimes led by police in the streets of Tokyo. Um, the government did acknowledge that something bad had happened, but they claimed that they're the victims of this kind of murder death squad thing were just a, a few hundred. And it wasn't until the post-war period that there was a kind of reckoning, um, and the kind of history textbooks were updated at that point. But what this suggests to me is that it, anything bad happens, blame the Koreans, right? It, it was outrageous rumors. Uh, the, the reason that people seem to give for whatever their kind of, you know, irrational uh, hatred for Koreans at the time, the reason that was officially given was the fear that uh, Koreans, for some reason, had poisoned the wells at the time. Obviously, this wasn't real. I mean, it's just people get, you know, dysentery and other things because of poor sanitation. It's not, it's not like the well poisoned. But, um, but so this is an incident that has serious repercussions, even though it wasn't widely reported how many people actually were murdered by this. It does have serious repercussions. It leads to an assassination attempt against the, the uh, then crown prince, future Hirohito emperor of Japan. And um, the and it leads to the discrediting of the communist party in Japan, because it turns out that this guy who, just a teenager actually, who tried to kill the uh, crown prince was a member of the communist party. And uh, so it has big political uh, kind of repercussions even within Japan. Um, and we see this sort of societal outrage focused on the most prominent minority group uh, in Japan. Oh, by the way, before I forget, you mentioned one other group, which was the so-called Budakumin, uh, as they're known today in Japan, the uh, sometimes called outcasts with an E. 
um, in Japanese society. And as exactly as you said, this is a group that officially had been uh, dissolved into the uh, kind of Heimin, the commoner group. But when they were dissolved, they were given the name New Commoners, Shin Heimin. So anybody anybody who wanted to know, it's, it's just a name change, right? So it's like saying um, New Japanese or something. If you're new, that means you're not really Japanese. So some of those people were emigrants to Korea. It was a quote-unquote modern um, uh um, birth, birth, um, birth ordained kind of underclass, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Not, as no opposed to the pre-modern one, it was a modern one. Yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. Very different. Um, just no, but I, I'm just saying that in jest, right. But it, it is interesting, you know, that we, 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 you know, an, an effort to kind of institute reforms that one feels is modern, but at the same time, you know, clearly societies often want to try to kind of retain mm-hmm. certain kind of, um, uh, distinctions or, or or so forth. So I think that's that's quite interesting. And um, as you said, you know, with America or something, I mean, like this, uh, Japanese people learn from the best. Uh, this isn't an excuse for uh, any other colonial projects, but they're they're looking at Western Europe and the U.S. Right. Eventually, has colonies too, and they're saying, "Hey, we're doing no more or less than everyone else." The only difference is that Korea is right next door, and that's a right. huge difference. So right, and just in terms of you know, and that's something we talked about in the class, which makes it, it fascinating is that. Um, because of, of so much of this, and, and, and we talked about, you know, we've, uh, in the class, we've talked about kind of the world climate and how this interacted, like this wasn't just happening in East Asia, this was part of a global kind of dialogue in, in this kind of racial purity and ethnic purity. And, and you know, I, I mean, it is putting things very bluntly, but, you know, in, in some ways, like white British ruling black Africans, like could like they, you know, they had a kind of stark visual well look at you know these people look different they're they're less they're inferior to us and that kind of you know um this is to use the technical academic term it's called phenotypes for the students right like how your you know how you look defines like your ethnicity or race right um and if we we look at that and and what you know what comes out in some of these stories and, and things you mentioned is that um obviously that was not that kind of clear distinguishing wasn't available to the japanese colonial ideology and and one of the interesting tidbits we talked about in class was that um, we, we, it's famously known that the Koreans were forced to take Japanese names during the war when they were trying to mobilize them as like loyal subjects of the emperor and, and so forth, right? Um, prior to that, it was illegal for Koreans to take Japanese names because they wanted to be able to clearly distinguish them, right? And like they, the worry was if Koreans start changing their name, it's going to be difficult to really, because of the, you know, it's it's quite almost, you know, and, and was what was fascinating to me um, and this was actually came out in a student presentation. So I, this is why these your know, student presentations are so great um, to, to talk up the class here is uh, the Japanese uh, authorities um, um, were often given lists like after these name changes, like they were given lists um, of, of key traits that could help them distinguish between Korean and Japanese. Right. Like so they still were trying. Yeah, <laughs> even though it can be quite difficult, like, you know, the, 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 the focus. And I think that relates to the story of the Kanto earthquake you mentioned that. Um, they, you know, because of the inability based on looks to clearly distinguish people, they use this language test. And as you mentioned, tragically, some people who spoke very thick regional dialects yes, were, were marked, out in this. As, yeah. marked out as Korean and, 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 mm-hmm. and, and killed um, mm-hmm. over this, which I think, tell, I mean, there's a lot in there about what identity and ethnicity is. And, and you know, the, the, I, I think that's, that's really rich. But maybe the, the last topic, since we're, you know, you, we're, um, uh, I don't want to keep you for too long, because it came up in this, in, in, in this, and it's a really good example of how Japan's colonial 
project in Korea kind of in some ways spilled back and leading into Japan, leading to an attempted assassination of the crown prince. I mean, you mentioned that was by the communists. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about anti-colonialism within J- Japanese society, which I think is always important to point out that, that you know, Japan is a massive country and still is a massive country with varying, it's a, a very many different opinions. And there was definitely an and, and, and fascinatingly enough, and I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, and we've talked about in the class, a lot of the kind of more radical Koreans uh, who obviously came from upper class families were radicalized, to use the term, or, you know, became communists at Japanese universities, right? Um, and so you mentioned the communists who tried to assassinate um, Crown Prince at the time, Crown Prince Hirohito. Um, uh, you know, talk a little bit about anti-colonialism within Japan. Sure. Well, um, I, I would say we have a tendency, me too, maybe, to look back at Japan or, or to assume about Japan that it's a monolithic society, that everybody sort of, uh, for example, let's say in the Russo-Japanese War or something like that, everybody was sort of um, patriotic and everybody supported the war and they were waving flags and everything. And of course, there's a reason we feel that way, because we see lots of, quote unquote, evidence of that if we look back at, you know, um, I don't know, like uh, photographs of the time or something. What we don't see, though, or what we don't, we can't see as easily, is the uh, sort of anti-war opinion, um, and that's just one way that we can identify a kind of um, uh, skeptical note within Japanese society about the entire imperial project, about imperial expansion, including to Korea or into Korea, um, and even against the the kind of ultra ultra popular seemingly popular wars like the Russo Japanese War, there are people who are writing against it publicly. So there's kind of a debate going on in Japan in 1904 or five, a debate that of course relates to Korea, as probably a lot of you know. The Russo Japanese War, in some ways, was about solidifying Japan's control over Korea. So uh, you know, driving out the threat of Russian uh, influence or uh, further encroachment. So. Um, it, these wars are being fought related at least to Korea, if not directly uh, over the fate of Korea. And there are people in Japan who are questioning whether it's a good idea. Uh, very prominent people like Yosono Akiko and others. Um, she wrote a famous poem at this time uh, saying, oh, my brother, you must not die. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it caused quite a, a disagreement in um, modern Japanese society in the early, you know, the 1900s about what is Japan's destiny, so to speak? Uh, does it have to include the exploitation of nearby countries? So uh, unfortunately, though, one of the results of this questioning or this sort of skepticism was a development of uh, pan-Asian rhetoric. Uh, I think the people who support pan-Asianism at that time in the early 1900s would say, we really believed in the idea of pan-Asian equality or you know, kind of Asia, Asia for the Asians. But that rhetoric was so useful to the Japanese state later on that it's it's become, of course, tainted by the legacy of how it was used later on. So, so interesting. So pan-Asianism uh, was a, 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 a this, I'm learning something new. This is great. Um, I had no idea that. So pan-Asianism was originally kind of a, a, a counter ideology of saying like not, you know, like let's let's work together. We, you know, Korea, China, J- you know, Japan, whatever. Um, let's like. Let's work together, and we, it need not be kind of an exploitive relationship, but one of kind of collaboration and collectivity. Yeah, collaboration in the good sense, right? <laughs> yes. Right. Well, that's fact because I mean that 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 adds a piece to the puzzle because um, we did, you know, one thing I am aware of, and I'm sure you are too, right? That that An Jun Gun was a Pan Asianist. I mean, and in, in some ways, um, which is fascinating, you know, in in the kind of manifesto that he wrote from 
prison after um, assassinating Hirobumi Ito, um, basically said that he, the emperor didn't realize that Ito was transgressing the emperor's proclaimed pan-Asian vision. I mean, it was really, so it's, I mean, I think Anjun Gun is, is a classic case of, of, of this kind of, you know, gray areas. I mean, he, wa- he wasn't, he didn't want Korea to be colonized, but he thought Japan had an important role in this kind of pan-Asian destiny and that people like Hirobumi, um, Ito were, um, uh, um, you know, um, kind of maligning that or, or deforming that and that he was, and, and I, what's even more fascinating, and I, I've talked to you about this, is that this became a trend that was, you know, common within Imperial Japan itself. Like, I'm doing this thing because the emperor really wants it and he doesn't know what's going on. So I'm, I'm, it's justified. Yeah, well, that's the problem of the empty center, the expectation that the emperor won't actually say what he wants. So anybody is free to claim whatever they want about it and do everything in the emperor's name. But yeah, but but the basic point, though, is that it's easy to think of this as, oh, left wing is good, right wing is bad. It's actually more complicated than that because a lot of the Pan-Asianists were left wing. Right. Uh, just their their rhetoric, which was a very positive rhetoric, ended up being exploited, I guess, by uh, actual government policy, you know. Um, well, that, yeah, and that ties back into the kind of broader, because I always, you know, I always try to to keep going in, in saying we can't get too buried in like East Asia and like understanding how this was embedded in this broader global discourse that Japan became very much a part of and, and kind of attached to um, uh, through the kind of rise and in, in increasing power of the Meiji government and getting that quote unquote Western respect as a civilized country, the being the only non-white country to really attain that um, in, in many ways, um, it, you know, is that, um, um, you know, th- as you mentioned, like a lot of these ideas about eugenics, like breeding people to be smart and everything and, and, and you know, and, and, and um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sterilizing women or, or, you know, who were considered not smart or not ethnically or so racially correct. Um, you know, it, it was maybe a nicer version of it, but this was a very common progressive quote unquote idea in the, in the twenties, thirties. So-called you know. scientific racism. Yeah. Right. And like, they, like, no, we need to do this. We need to control the population and we need to only let s- smart, highly capable people have children. I mean, this was not just, we think of that as like, that's Hitler. And it was Hitler was 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 a, a an awful spawn of that, but it, people forget right that this was something that was held by very educated, urbane like you know progressives, um in in the tens and twenties um in, in, in this period right it was seen as a kind of educated way like now we're smart and now we're not just going to let everyone have kids like that's mm-hmm. not scientific, mm-hmm. yeah um, you know and so I think and in in the ways I think that filtered into um. The rhetoric within Japan. I mean, of course, it, w- it wasn't just being like unfiltered. I mean, of course, it was like mapped onto Japanese culture and history and context. But um, this was a very much um, Japan attached itself to this kind of global discourse about, um, you know, social Darwinism and, you know, prospering nations expand and weak nations perish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 um, you know, uh, sovereignty was a right you demonstrated through strength and virility like a species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, yeah. well, you know, I mean, there's actually so much more, and 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 one thing, uh, maybe maybe we can save it for another day. I might, I might track you down in a month or two when we're doing um, more contemporary issues, because I do want to talk about how this continues on long after um, the colonial period. I mean, obviously things are still ongoing, and so um, I would love to do a, a, a chat maybe in a month or two about 
um, how these legacies um, not only continue, but continue to profoundly affect um, Japanese society um, uh, decades after, and, and obviously Korean society, right? So, you know, that's one thing I would say, colonialism is not like a, an event that ends, it, it, it carries on, but in, in different forms, right? All right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Sean O'Reilly. Um, I'm going to thank you on behalf of the students of HIS 296. Um, they are, um, I'm sure this, I learned, I learned a lot uh, and I'm sure they are going to learn a ton from this. So I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoy it, students. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you.